You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The reproduction and genetics is one part of it. So go, Chris. Yes, let's talk about that because animals are being saved through science at zoos. What can they teach us? Wait. (laughs) The Association for Zoos and Aquariums. Thank you, Chris. This is why you're my partner in crime. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And I'm Corbin. Hey, there he goes. Hey, welcome, hey. Corbin. What's <laughs> a little delay. Our- How's it going, yes. guys? <laughs> Good, good. And we are so excited. This has actually been in the works for a few months. Corbin's been really busy. So we have scheduled this kind of round table again. I think we need to do this every year. And can you believe it's almost like Corbin, you launched your podcast came out about when ours did. And it's been, can you believe it's been a year and a half almost? Isn't it insane? I can't even believe it. I can't, yeah. and you guys are well into your episode seventies. I feel like a slacker over here. Like I get <laughs> notifications. You guys are busting them out like crazy. I'm like, you know, you know, keeping them up on a weekly basis. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Well, there's two of us too. So it helps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Angie cracks a whip on me and I got to get out there and hustle. And then I crack the whip on her. So, um, but yeah, th- thanks for, thanks for joining <laughs> We're, we're, yeah, thanks for joining he's us. Actually, we're gonna have to... he's, he's actually a softie. I always text him. I can't do it. I cannot meet tonight or I can't talk tonight. And he's always like, okay. So well, yes, he's a... Uh, and- <laughs> I have to say something though. Thank you for being lenient with me because what the audience doesn't know is I actually asked them to postpone this another hour because I was working on an alligator exhibit and I was like, that's a great excuse though, right? I mean, it really is. Like who in the world texts you and says, Hey, I'm sorry. We're working with a 10 and a half foot alligator. Can we like postpone this just, you know, an hour? And he's like, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had two little baby alligators that were giving me a hard time tonight going to bed. So I actually appreciated your, yeah. uh, uh, your text because I was not ready to go myself. Yeah. Yeah. Life, life, it keeps us busy, but it's so, I'm so happy that we all get to be here today and, uh, just hang out and have another roundhouse coffee or tea or I think we were all drinking bubble water because we're yes. 
super mm-hmm. fun and boring. Yes. The most boring. masculine yeah. thing. Yeah, we need to do this over beer sometime, actually. That'd be fun. Like, I felt like yes. I know you so well, and we've been friends for years, but we've never actually met in person. It's the craziest thing, the internet and podcasting. I love it. It is. It is. It is. It is. We, yeah, we need well, to do, like, a live podcast in New York or something. I don't know. Or yeah. In Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> At Corbin's Ranch. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> All right, so let's just let, let's jump into it. So we, what what really we we brought Corbin? We asked Corbin if he wanted to do this, and we want to really with this one. This is something Angie and I from the very beginning have felt so strongly for, and that's really to discuss and and from our perspective. And again, Angie and I are not paid by any zoos. This is our passion project. You know, we're they won't scientists. hire us. Just kidding. No, they won't hire us. I'm trying. Yeah. But no, I used to work. I worked for. I was a zookeeper for years. Um, yes, but. No longer, no longer. Do you, no. Know, you, know, you know, no. We have no financial incentive, right? And we haven't. Unfortunately, you know, <laughs> yeah. Know, hold on, I don't know. like shoot us in the foot yet. <laughs> they, they should be paying us, but oh, you know, I'm we wanted you. to bring Corbin on because you know, zoos, aquariums, and really what Corbin does, animals used for you know entertainment purposes, but but more importantly, education purposes. And so this is a term I know Angie and I have used before. We call it edutainment, using animals to capture imaginations, to get people excited, and then educate them. Because that's what you do, Corbin. I mean, you educate millions. I mean, millions. Yeah, and thank you for that intro, because I bet people are listening like, wait, who's Corbin again? Like, what? what's going on? <laughs> so thank you for actually explaining what I do. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So um, yeah, I, I take my job so seriously regarding, you know, when I'm on these national shows using educational animal ambassadors. So I'm excited to dive in this with you for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can give a, a quick background for the for the audience that doesn't know or didn't hear your interviews from last year. Yeah, that'd be great. So my name is Corbin. I am almost 30. My God, I feel so old. Uh, but I have been working with animals on television for 15 years now. And so I got my start on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And I, it's just like kind of a long story. And you can go back. You guys actually did a great interview. I love when you both interviewed me. Um, last year, you could find that in the All Creatures interview, but I got my start on The Tonight Show at 14. I started in Animal Rescue and have since uh, basically pursued my passion. So now I'm a the number one, I'm so excited, you guys, the number one animal and studio expert for the Today Show. And the reason why I'm so excited, I, like, I know it sounds like I'm bragging, but it was, I've worked very, very hard, um, you know, decades of just touring and educating people just to get that spot. And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, to have mm -hmm. a spot on the number one morning show to tell a few million people about animals and get people excited, that's like my passion. And so that's, that's where I'm at now. And so, um, yeah. And so I'm, uh, like I said, pursuing a career in television, hopefully one day to have my own show. Yes. Yes. And then we'll come on. (laughs) You'll meet us. There you go. That'd be great. But I have a face for radio, so I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, you guys like... are both good looking. No, I was, I'm happy because I didn't know what you both looked like because I was a fan of the podcast last year and I thought, I hope these guys can, you know, average up to what they sound like and you both are very good looking people. <laughs> that might thank be you. the nicest thing anybody has said to me this month. So thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this month. <laughs> so. Oh, that's funny. Just to give some some more background, so you know, I think one of the questions we ask is is you know, have has society's views changed over animals and in confinement or animals under human care? You know, is the public more caring? Do they care more now today? That's a question. I think stories like the movie Blackfish, uh, things that happen with 
you know, hombre at the Cincinnati Zoo, other incidences that are spread over social media. So how does that put zoos in, in a highlight, you know, or a spotlight? And I think, you know, the question is, what exactly are zoos and aquariums doing? You know, are they doing, does the data back them up? Are they really doing conservation? Are they making an impact in the world? So that's really how we were setting this, this whole thing up. Now, I will ask, if you are against zoos, aquariums, or animals used for entertainment, just please listen throughout the podcast and then give us some feedback because we do care yeah, what, well, what you Yeah, well, it think, was right? really, for yeah. me, it was interesting to kind of look around and read some blogs and articles and try to understand what the critics are saying that aren't fans of zoos and aquarium or animals under human care. Because, obviously, full disclosure... Because I was a zookeeper for years and really got behind the scenes and understood what it was like to work at an accredited zoo. And we'll, we're going to discuss that, of course, in this podcast, uh, because not all two zoos or aquaria are created equal by any stretch of the imagination. And so, but because I worked at an accredited zoo, which is the highest standard of care, I, I am a little bit biased in the fact, or I'm a lot biased in the fact that I, a lot of what the naysayers are saying against zoos are the the dung that they're flinging. If you'll pardon the pun, I love puns. Uh, is <laughs> you can, in order to be open minded, I want to try to understand it and see if there's some validity to it or why they might think this, and then also show data or facts about why that thought, that reason, or the reason they might like to try to get people to open their minds. That of course, I guess, are naysayers. It was my driving force behind doing this podcast today. Yeah, and that's great. And really quick, I guess I should add that with my job working on shows like the Today Show and other late night programs, I work firsthand with AZA accredited zoos. And I have a lot of experience, you know, with their protocols, the permitting, I mean, just everything. And I also was a spokesperson for the AZA at one point in my career. So I'm excited to kind of use that experience as well to, uh, yeah, to add to the conversation. Yeah, and in case we didn't mention it, AZA stands for... The American, oh, I was, why do I always screw this up? Oh, these, I guess we, I guess we should say what the hell the AZA is. Clearly, I don't know My after 20 years. Uh, I just always say AZA. It's like, a, it's that, that for me is a word. That's a noun. It means it carries a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> the Association for Zoos and Aquariums. Thank <laughs> you, Chris. You this is why you're my partner <laughs> oh, yeah, in crime. <laughs> <Yes>. <clears throat> uh, oh, man. You have mom brain. We know what that is. On fire. <clears throat> it's like nine o'clock yeah. at night here. <laughs> but I mean, let, let me just say this too with Corbin here. I mean, Corbin, what you're doing is so critical, I think, for a better planet. Like if I go back to my childhood, long, long time ago, but you know, we, you know, Jack Hanna, um, Steve Irwin, these are the folks that, you know, and, and I'm going back to, you know, the eighties way back when, but I'm watching those nature shows, watching people like, like, you know, uh, Joan Embry on the tonight show, you mm. know, as a kid seeing that and being like, Oh my God. And, and capturing my sense of wonder. Right. So, I mean, can, I don't know if Angie or, or you have experiences like that as a kid too, but really what you're doing, especially for, for younger you know, kids or teenagers is you're capturing their imagination. And then someone like me for the rest of my life, I said, Hey, I'm going to dedicate my life to animals and studying them and, and helping them. Right. I mean, I'm sure you all have similar stories like that. Absolutely. And I, I grew up in the country, so I had access to a lot of different farm yard animals, if you will, and especially riding horses. 
So I had that intimate interaction uh, with with animals right from the very get-go, and I knew it was my calling, if you will. But what I didn't realize, because I lived in the country and grew up with the animals, a lot of my friends did, I didn't realize that a lot of kids in bigger cities, in lower-income areas especially, do not have access to anything of that sort. And being at the zoo, the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, where I worked for years, and seeing the amount of education work that they do with their zoo ambassadors and all the programs that, A, they go out to the schools in obviously all different types of incomes, but especially lower income where students are, and children have never seen an animal um, and working with them in their schools. And then, of course, because Lincoln Park Zoo is free to all, uh, all the school buses of children that would come in and just learn and and their eyes would open. And my motto has always been, I don't care where you live or where you're from or what your income is. I love being an animal ambassador and I respect so much what Corbin does uh, and what a lot of different zoos are doing because you never know who's going to be the next Jane Goodall, who you're going to inspire or who are you as an educator and the animal as an ambassador are going to inspire to make significant noble mm -hmm. peace prize winning, if you ask me, contri contributions to yeah. saving animals. So right. that's for me what moves me about why I keep doing this podcast at nine o'clock at night when <laughs> I have mom brain. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I know. I think that's a common theme of like recent interviews I've done with, you know, wildlife professionals and experts around the world is one person can really make a difference. And I even think with our podcast, with your podcast, All Creatures, or my podcast, Animals to the Max, if we could just change one person's perception about animals or get some people excited, I think our jobs, I think it makes it completely worth it. Like our job's done. And so I, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. And it's in, and collaborating too is, is incredible because right now we're, we're facing a huge crisis. I mean, huge, just this week in the news, six mass extinction species dying off at an incredible rate. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the vaquita porpoise. They're down to 10, 10. When we, oh my we God. covered them over a year oh ago, there was God. 30 plus. Now they're down to 10 and they're gone. Like they're pretty much written off. Yeah. So they're, they're dead. They're, uh, that species is, is going to be gone here pretty quick. So, you know, there's just there's habitat destruction, pollution, human population, trash in the oceans, climate change, poaching, on and on and on. So, you know, when you look at the role of zoos, aquariums, and, and education, you know, we need to, to really get our, our message out there. So all of us need to collaborate. All of us need to be booming like this is going on and these animals need our help. Okay, I have to tell you all something listening. Angie accidentally hit something on, on her computer to where we could see her notes. And I am so impressed with all the notes you take for your podcast. Take a look at my <laughs> notes right here. So I just, <laughs> I just come with the gift of gab. No, I'm just well, kidding. Well, good. Then you can, you can right, read off right of them here. and we but can bounce. What I was going to yeah, no, but what I was going to say is that my favorite fact is over 700 million people worldwide. That's worldwide visit zoos, which. Yeah. It's insane. It's It just blows my mind. It's the number one recreational activity here in the United States, and I would bet probably the world. And then, Corbin, even looking at just AZA, so the the, Amer the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, I've got it. I've got it. Um, 
their educational program. So this is what things that are going to happen inside their zoos. They talk about everything from connecting to nature, habitat loss, human wild conflict, careers. So that's always good for kids that go to zoos, uh, sustainable living. They have tons of facts and information about how to uh, have more of a green lifestyle. And I mean, the, the amount and energy in education is just staggering. And a recent survey of, of a zoo and aquaria in the AZA shows that there's 2.6 million hours of service when you combine the zoos and over almost close to 3000 education programs. So it's just amazing. And that's just inside the gates. So that's, that's what they're doing. And, and everybody, and I'm sure most people are familiar that a lot of zoos hold camps and other daily activities that are phenomenal. But the other I thing love too, zoo I camp. It, Sorry to interrupt. That was so. Oh no, fun. I cannot wait. <laughs> I, I know. I there's one. There's one here at a conservation uh, center here in Florida, and I'm like, I'm too old to go, but I cannot wait till Xander can go. <laughs> Super excited. <laughs> I, I checked the age limit, and yeah, they didn't. They didn't want me, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these programs. Uh, 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 the other, the thing I think that's often forgot about too is that they're educating beyond the zoo gate. So they have offsite, like the ones I was talking about in Chicago, offsite education programs for the AZA accredited zoos reaching more like three and a half million people and close to three quarters of a million, uh, different individual programs at different schools. And once again, these are all off-site, like zoos going out and doing education. And so I just think it's it's really staggering when when you look at the numbers because people are just say like, oh, you know, zoos are educating, or are or if the naysayers, oh no, they're not. It's like no, if you look at the numbers, I mean, we had Corbin's big statistic of seven hundred million people going to zoos annually. They're reaching millions and millions of those through education programming. And going back to what we had originally talked about, that's getting kids excited about animals and nature and science, which, I mean, obviously all three of us are going to argue that animals are the most important, but I think science and STEM type careers, we need a ton more of that, especially in the United States, if we're going to be competitive in this day and age. So if you can get, and some of Chris's research showed that just getting students talking about animals and doing behavioral research, they have a more yeah, positive, yeah. or what yeah. were the results of that paper, yeah, Chris, they, that they had yeah, a more they positive, liked, they did, did better. better. <laughs> they liked it. They did better at school. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for clarifying that for me. For <laughs> They got more excited about science and we got them early, you know, right when they started college, we, we had them studying animal behavior and they just fell in love with it and they got really interested and want to pursue science careers. So we need to do that with the younger generation. Yeah. So Corbin, I mean, I'll ask you this real quick because we're we're on this topic of education. I mean, how many millions you guys get statistics on the shows you do? I mean, how many millions have you, do you think you've reached in just the last few years? Oh, I, I actually have another statistic. (laughs) Give me one second. Okay. Okay. I actually have this. This is great. (laughs) Hold on. I can't believe Numbers, numbers. We love numbers. Yeah, so do the shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all about numbers. All right, all right. Here we go. All right, what do we got? 
I have it. So basically, after every time I'm on the Today Show, I get a nice little email from a media monitoring company, and they mm-hmm. actually help us out. And basically, they're able to let us know how many people are able to watch or who watch the segments. And so, like, they'll give you the Nielsen audience uh, is well mm-hmm. over 3 million people. Wow. The publicity value is $432,000. The calculated ad equivalency of what I do, like, for education is 144000 And if you want the exact number, let's see, we just did a recent one. We had 3,309,183 people view that segment that I did on the Today Show for a couple minutes. So, and they, like I said, I can look at all the data right here. So it really is invaluable. I mean, just regarding the amount of people that you can reach through television, even though I know we are switching into more of a digital age, you're still reaching tons of people around the nation. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is like, there's this huge reach that's possible, uh, obviously through zoos or through, uh, animal education ambassador type programs. But of course, being a, critical scientist, I'm always wondering, well, does that mean you're actually connecting to the kids? And if you are connecting, does that, are, is it helping? And I, that's why I love Chris's study to show that these uh, young college kids did have more of an interest in a STEM type career after they ended the class where they learned about animal behavior and collected some behavioral data than when they started. And looking at some of the research, uh, 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 gentleman named Brian Ogle in 2016 published an article in Universal Journal of Management looking exactly at more of the specific question. And a couple different aquariums, he they put an interactive in that wasn't there. So that's where an interactive and zoo language is basically something that gets people talking about the animals. And I think this is one of those touch tanks where you could touch a, a, a stingray. Um, those have become kind of popular. And so they did a lot of polling of the, uh, of the people before they interacted with the animal and had animal ambassadors, the stingray ambassadors, and then after. And what the article reports is that having that aquatic interaction increased how knowledgeable the individuals felt about aquatic wildlife and also increased the likelihood that these participants would take action to protect the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that to me, and granted this is one study and at a couple different aquarium, one quote unquote edutainment animal interactive, but we need more of that. And of course studies take money and zoos don't have money. And obviously university people like me, we don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it's hard to, uh, it's hard to get these studies done because we I think the goal is to always be more effective with our education and be more efficient uh, is the goal. But I definitely would have to say that hands down zoos and aquaria educate a lot of people. The accredited ones do it really well. And it seems to be that there's definitely evidence that that is their interactions at zoos are influencing how they think about animals and how they want to mm-hmm. conserve them in the wild period. Is my I mean, I, I go back to, you know, I grew up in Southern California and San Diego Zoo. That was my zoo. Always Ooh. went to the San Diego Zoo. I still to this day remember as a teenager walking through one of their exhibits and it showed what the rainforest produces, you know, as far as medicines and, and technologies and all that stuff. And then 
next to it's like, oh, look how important the rainforest is. The next walkover display was they're all going away. And this is, you know, in the 80s, you know, or yeah, 80s. I'm not old. But, you know, this is a long time ago. So that had an impact on me as a young man. As far as that message, I, I still remember it to this day. And I just went back to the San Diego Zoo a few months ago. And is I it, went to the is LA that Zoo. interactive still yeah. there? Uh, no. <laughs> They've since put a gift shop up. This no, is, <laughs> I'm kidding. This is like, yeah, this is like 30 years ago. It's, uh, you know, San Diego Zoo's done a pretty phenomenal job on their exhibits. And, um, but anyways, it was just as, as a young person, you know, it was so impactful to me. And here I am today spreading the conservation message, you know, so it does have that, that influence because the critics are saying zoos and aquariums are doing nothing for animals. It's all exploitation. Correct. The the conservation message is bogus. So I, and and then of course we're saying that's, that's, that's not true. Millions of dollars and research and things like that. But I think one of the things I, I really wanted to cover today too was kind of really quickly, you know, me, I like to do natural history and oh, go into the history of I'm things. I'm so excited and, for this. I do. <laughs> Does Corbin, see, I don't think Corbin heard our latest episode. I don't know if Corbin knows the largest bird on earth. Do you remember Angie? Yes. Wingspan? The, the, you, wingspan? No, no, no. Oh, okay, go ahead. Biggest, just the biggest. The ostrich. Yes, so the, the weight being sick. Or the moa? Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, ever, ever. Uh, Owls, I don't remember the name, but it was 1,600 pounds. What? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The elephant bird. bird. See, I have Napoleon, my pet emu, and he's six feet. And, you know, anyway, they're so impressive. That's a really big bird. Okay. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elephant bird that just took over the MOA um, last September. But research. So, anyways, you know, I love this history stuff. It is crazy. You're reading the history of zoos. It dates back 2,500 years. You know, animals were kept, you know, under human care. It's horrific to think about, but you think of Rome, the Colosseum, you know, how they were really, that's, that's horrible. And that was 2000 years ago. Right. And, you know, some people think, oh, this, this idea of conservation is just something recent that zoos have come up with because they've taken some public pressure. And that is absolutely not true. Is absolutely not true. He says, I, this is really eye opening for me. You know, zoos, as humanity has developed in the last few hundred years, zoos were originally or menageries were for royalty, right? King of England, Queen of England, you know, France, all that status of wealth. They had these animals, but they were not shown to the public in the 18th century. So 1700s is when zoos really started and they started showing off these collections to the public. So, you know, we're going 250 years roughly. And even then the public was against mistreatment of animals, really use of animals. It wasn't like, Oh, you know, look how cool this is. Oh yeah. They were, it's so you read this history and the, the public shaped what zoos are today, really over, over 200 years. You know, in the, uh, in the 1700s, there was a German philosopher. He wrote about humans having a moral sensibility to care for these animals and not exploit them. So people have cared. It's not, this isn't something just in the last 20, 30 years. This is the last few hundred years. We've always loved that. Um, hold on. I want to go with that. 
Is that my horn? <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, here we go. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that's a little lame. I, my slide got moved down. Hold on. <laughs> it's a little lame. It's okay. So, <laughs> okay. So this idea of conservation and so, so, you know, the bottom line there is the public has shaped how animals have cared for. They have been studying how to care for these animals for over 200 years and it hasn't gone away. This idea of conservation began in like 1800, 1790s to 1810. They, they realized zoos are important to conserving these species. So this idea of zoos and conservation isn't recent. This is long time ago. Angie, this, I found this factoid. You're going to like this one. In the 1800s, zoos started to exchange animals, not only for study, but for breeding purposes. A recent regenerative animal was spread uh, around all over yeah. Europe in the 1850s. Do you remember? Oh, of wow, course. Yes, the axolotl. I do remember it's that. The axolotl. Yeah, the three, three individuals. Yeah, let's go there. 1850s. Wow. Yeah. So they were spreading them around because they were studying this regeneration. Really at the end of the 19th century is when zoos started making a big impact on conservation. So in, in the 1880s and 90s, I don't think people knew this, but the American bison was down to 600 animals. 600. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mass there used to be millions, mass kill right? off. My gosh. There was only 600 left. Of, yeah, uh, almost 60 million, I think they thought, roamed the plains of America. Because of the Bronx Zoo and the Smithsonian, they saved the American bison. Right. This is 1890. You know, so Angie and I talked about more recently. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. conservation has always been a big thing of zoos. It, it It is a big part of their mission. It always has been. It's just now there's more of a shift because they are so critical what's going on around the planet. And now, Chris and Corbin, fast forward to, to the present day. I found a study. It's a little bit dated. It's from um, 2011 out of Zoo Biology. And what the authors report there is that collectively were the zoos of the entire world in 2011 or so spent 350 million annually on conservation. And if we moved, if we shifted just our, uh, the North American or zoos, AZA, if you will, they, as of 2017, so much fresher numbers have spent, I don't, oh, this is a hard number for me. Oh, uh, 220 million in animal conservation. So just, North, just North America. Yes. The AZA. That's so just North America. $220 million mm-hmm. is what they're doing. And I think now I heard it's close to a quarter of a billion. So. Yeah. I mean. Regarded that. So, yeah. So, and a lot of these, you know, a, a lot of these projects are led by AZA member organizations, these accredited zoos, and they're in 128 different countries. And 40% take place in, in, the U, in the United States. About 60% take place outside of the United States. All the field conservation work, research that they need to do. They have over a thousand partners. Uh, they produce a lot of scientific papers and results to help make conservation managers and government agencies make recommendations about um, either reintroductions or how the animal moves through the land. And maybe it's safer in this area versus that area, how much room it needs, everything from basic biology to behavior to breeding to 
reintroduction science, things like that. So it's really taken off. And I think zoos just do a really, they don't really give themselves enough credit or they're, they had, they don't, they're not great marketers for themselves to exp- explain what they're doing. And I think if you go to the zoo and and take the time and read some signage, a lot of times they'll post things about a little bit about the field conservation that they're doing. But I think a lot of the, the critics don't really understand this global reach of how much money they are pouring into animals that live in the wild and which is thus helping save them. Well, and you have to just really quick, I want to chime in because I think they said the average person spends anywhere from eight to 10 seconds at an exhibit. So a lot of people aren't even reading the signage. (laughs) I know it's hard to get a lot of messages through. (laughs) It is. And I have a lot of zoo educator friends and that's, you know, they pull their hair out trying to figure out how do do we get people to like Corbin, like when you go, when you go on these shows, how do you script your message? What are you thinking? You know, that process of, okay, I'm bringing these species out. What I'm, what I'm going to say about them? Because you only do what, like 30 seconds to a minute each animal or each animal. One time I yeah. did four or five animals under two minutes. And I'll tell you what, um, that was so Jeez. much fun. Uh, <laughs> but it is very hard when you're on these, <laughs> when you're on these national shows, you are pressed for time. And that, and I, I actually want to ask, I just want to clarify because everyone sends me messages. I even got some hateful people on Twitter last time I was on the show in January calling out the Today Show, calling out Kathy Lee and Hoda for just how, we're, you know, we're not allowed a lot of time. And the thing what people don't realize is these shows, every second you have a national television is just precious. It's worth a lot of money. And so we, we can't dictate the amount of time. I'll tell you what, I would love to talk, you know, about animals for hours on the show. That's why I have a podcast. What, you? Like you guys do. I know, I know, right? I haven't shut up since I got on the mic. Uh, but I was just going to say that we're not able to dictate that. But Chris, to answer your question, I pick, for me, I pick, and I love this because I'm able to, I, I create my talking points and I have to give them to my producers and they'll say, okay, yeah, you know, yep, yep, yep. This is great. But I try to find the most fascinating or unusual facts. And the reason why is I want to change people's perceptions of animals. And one thing that just comes to mind for me is a very common animal, which I wish we had in Idaho, but we don't, but I'm talking about the Virginia opossum. And mm-hmm. they, they eat seven to 9,000 ticks in a single season and they oh, don't wow. carry rabies and they're not rats. Like, so crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Like I, I die. Look, I'm excited about it right now. <laughs> so if I'm able to share some fun facts or really quick to give you a sneak peek, I'm going on the today show next week and we're bringing on a corvid, a black throated magpie jay. So corvids are the family of crows and ravens. Some scientists think they're more intelligent than primates. They can problem solve, have self-awareness. They just found out crows hold funerals for family members. <laughs> a scientific study. Okay, so I just wasted five minutes. But I'm saying no, that's, that's the great. kind of stuff I look for. And those are some of the talking points you're going to hear me say because that's what I want to get across to people. Yeah, no, and it's, it's again, education, right? You're, you're educating three yeah. million people at, per, per shot and – they're tuning into that. So then they turn around like this is how I used to think about our podcast. You know, we throw the pebble in the in the still water and we create those ripples and how many people you can influence uh, with education. So that's where zoos and aquariums are are, are doing. So, you know, it, it's critical. It's critical. Angie, kind of on the uh, conservation thing real quick. You know, the you, you talk about money. 
We can also talk about this Noah's art concept that is really critical today, right? Yes, Chris, you bring up a fantastic point. So I want to talk a lot about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it looks, I'm sorry. It yeah, looks like you're going I, to church. Look, like, I, yes. <laughs> I know. I No, no, because you, you. it's just a really important point that people don't realize uh, as far as the genetic banking that zoos do and how much science as a scientist, how much science is going on there. And so uh, the reproduction and genetics is one part of it. So go Chris. Yes. Let's talk about that because animals are being saved through science at zoos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just from my own experience, art, your experience. I mean, you were doing white rhino work. I was doing some elephant work, manatee work and what zoos are doing. It's critical. And just to, so, you know, my own research, like, you know, I really care. One of the things is elephants and the work that we were doing with Danielle, we don't know how to preserve gametes and bull elephants. We can't, you know, go collect a bull elephant and transport his, his, you know, semen and stuff across, you know, the U S to breed other elephants. So you actually have to transport the bull around and that's super expensive and it's stressful on the animal and it's not ideal. So what we were trying to, to, to start the very beginning process of understanding how to preserve that so we can spread genetics and maintain an emergency population of elephants because they, they're going extinct. I mean, 15 minutes, every 15 minutes, elephants poached, boom, dead. And they're on a downward trajectory and they're going to be extinct in 50, 50 years if we don't do something. And that's just one example. There's tons of species that, you know, Angie with the white rhinos. Northern white rhino, we know the last male died. There's only, what, two females left now, right? Or three. I don't know if the other third, the old, the mom and the two daughters. And so some of the scientists that Angie was working with is working on trying to bring back the northern white rhino. And can we do that? And we only can do that through zoos, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that this genetic bank of, of housing gametes um in also doing uh, reproductive, artificial reproductive technologies is really critical for uh, several species that are on their last leg with their numbers or need our help. And zoos have in the past, obviously moving forward in the future, they have goals to save, like you said, the Northern white rhino, but they've also been successful through artificial reproduction um, and understanding more about the reproductive biology of this, of these wildlife have been able to increase numbers when the animals are living under human care and they can collect the gametes and do artificial reproductive technologies and then have the babies and then reintroduce those into the wild. And there's several success stories about utilizing gamete biology um, cryopreservation, artificial reproductive technologies, and reintroductive science to take animals that were functionally extinct in the wild and bring them back. Uh, the California condor, the black-footed ferret here mm. in North America, uh, and then some two very popular overseas um, animals would be the Przewalski horse or the pea horse. And of course the Arabian orcs is kind of a flagship animal that I don't know how much, I don't think a lot of our artificial reproductive technologies were used. Um, and that, cause this was actually years ago. Uh, I think they breed pretty well under human care, but they were housed at zoos, accredited zoos and breeding genetics. So the other thing too, that people don't, I think understand is that there's a host of scientists that work at these accredited zoos, 
And so once again, these are AZA accredited zoos that are, that have a lot of scientists in hand. They have geneticists, they have reproductive biologists, endocrinologists, conservation biologists. And so I'm not talking about the, you know, pull a little roadside zoo where you pull over and get your picture taken with a white tiger cub. Don't do that. That's bad. Don't do that. That's any, if you're allowed to take a picture with a white tiger cub, that is, uh, not a good sign of a good zoo for lack of, without me going too much into the weeds there. Um, so, but at these zoos, they have all these scientists. There are new positions are being created at all sorts of accredited zoos for welfare scientists, okay, that are investigating how to improve welfare uh, for so many different species to make them happier, more comfortable, things like that, to anthropomorph- anthropomorphize a little bit. And so with animals, with this science, zoos – are important because they're able to explore so many unanswered questions about behavior, physiology, welfare, management, education. Zoos are actually studying, are we making an impact? Things like that. And then through this technological advances of hiring, you know, scientists that are familiar with these, uh, you know, familiar with gambit production and things like that, they're always trying to improve populations of, especially of endangered animals. And I think that's kind of a good lead into one of, one of the biggest things I always hear naysayers say, that's a lot, naysayers say, uh, critics say is that, oh, well, zoos are just going out and stealing animals from the wild. And that is a hundred percent not true. Unless it's an animal like the Przewalski horse where there was, they were down to what, Chris? 30? What were they down to? The well, no, they were down to 19 and then they were extinct okay. in the wild. Okay. So yeah. So but, yes, but, then they did. They co- right. They got ferret. The, yeah. Yes. Black-footed ferrets, similar. They did go out and get the last 12 or 16, I yeah. think, black-footed ferrets and then bring them in uh, under human care. They learned about their biology. They bred them. And over time, they were able to get a big enough, genetically diverse enough population. Scientists were studying that. That's above, that's above my brain. <laughs> that's, I'm not a geneticist, but making sure that they weren't too genetically inbred. And then since then, they've been able to release a lot of the kits into the wild, um, in the plains of North America. And now they have a viable population of, I think like 300 or so, and it keeps growing. So that's the stuff that's going on behind the scenes at, accredited zoos that aren't probably in people's ears, let alone all the scientists that are there. So it's not just, of course, there's a brilliant animal managers and curators and the keeper staffs. I mean, I could go on for days. I obviously was a keeper, so I'm biased, but keepers are trained. They go to school. Most of, most of them have to have a bachelor degree uh, in biology or some animal related field. So they're educated in science and, anim- and uh, animal behavior and things like that. And then the management knows a lot. But once again, I'm as a scientist, I love that the fact that they're bringing in scientists to help try to reduce biasness to improve their care for their animals, both from a medical point of view, from a um, uh, from a welfare point of view, from a genetic point of view, from a re- reproduction point of view. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's actually a really exciting time in zoos, um, in the past 20 to 30 years because they just keep growing and getting better. And, uh, and there's data to show that that's happening. There's a ton of research yeah, being and, done. 
Yeah. And I'm going to bring in Corbin here in a second, but just to add to your list. So, you know, we talked about the bison, Arabian oryx, black-footed ferret, Przewalski horse, golden lion tamarind, Puerto Rican parrot, freshwater mussels, California condor, Kahanos spray toad, Corabri frog, bongo, regent honey. honey oh, ear. I love bongos. I keep trying to get my husband to get them at his, uh, <laughs> his, his uh, yeah. Panamanian golden frog, bell, belinger water too. turtle. Yeah, a, a mere leopard, and this is just not even all of them. All of these species would be extinct if it wasn't for zoos or aquariums. Right. They'd all be extinct mm-hmm. and gone. And, oh, and I don't even, I probably didn't even answer my question. <laughs> Sorry, it's late. Uh, about do they go get them from the wild? The answer is no. They use these breeding plans, and they're called species survival plans or SSPs. And there's hundreds of them. They're for an end. It's, you know, it's basically like a, you know, a dating profile for the species that they're trying to save. Rather, of course, the endangered ones are very, very important and they're very, um, but the way, so therefore the ones that they match up with to breed is really critical because of genetics. And so these species survival plans are part of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums or the AZA. And each species is monitored closely by a taxon advisory group or called a TAG. And there's over 500 of them in North America and, and more over in Europe. And so what they do is, yeah, it's like a matchmaking, a matchmaking profile. And they put together animals that are, have, um, the most genetic diversity, but also there's all this mathematical equation stuff that, like I said, is a little beyond me, but they, they take into account too of where the animal is and if they, you know, if they are going to ship it. What, what does that mean for the animal? The hell, you know, the animal's health, of course, in, um, is the number one concern, but they're doing that. And so the babies are not being taken from the wild. They are being bred under human care through these species survival plans. And that's how they're able, when these animals are extinct from the wild, that's how they're able to get the numbers up to then be released in the wild. Now, are all animals that were born in zoos released in the wild? No. Um, that's obviously impossible. Um, but these critically endangered ones, that is definitely the goal. And for the other ones that are on the cusp that are threatened or even not, they're creating a genetic bank for that day. Unfortunately, if there are no more Northern white rhinos or gosh forbid in our lifetime at the rate we're going black and white rhinos uh southern white rhinos so white, southern it's, whites, it's yeah. there's just yeah. a lot of a real a lot of science going on that it just i think people don't um appreciate perhaps yeah yeah people don't know they don't know it they don't know it yeah they it's not only like just education but the research that's going on and we can go for days we won't but i want to bring corbin here because like you were talking about international regulations you can't you know capture wild stock it's usually regulated or banned you know, in the U.S., we have so many regulations. So, Corbin, you, you know, I know in our interview with you, you talked about it. But if you can, for the listeners, so when you, the animals you use, but then also your own personal sanctuary where you're rescuing these animals, you know, what kind of regulations do you have to go through? Let me tell you, Chris, dealing with the permits, that's my favorite part of the job. Um, <laughs> 
sure. I'm sure. Dear Lord. Uh, no, and it's actually good. I'm happy that it is established. But when you go on these national shows, these animals, you have to go through a rigorous permit process. So not only do the zoos have to make sure you have your licenses, they have to, the animals have to have updated health certificates, uh, vaccines. The animals that I use also are not wild so-and-so animals. They're, you know, animal ambassadors that were usually orphaned um, or that zoos just use for educational programs. So it's not that I team up with the zoo and then I'm like, oh, I want that leopard. And then, you know, that's not how it goes. Like we go through a list of animal candidates who are used to people who would be comfortable. And um, just, you know, regarding my own animals, we have special permits for my alligators. There's a lot of stuff you go through and it takes weeks, sometimes months I think the animal oh, – actually, I'm going to ask you guys this. Which animal do you think gave me the biggest headache regarding getting a permit into, into New York City? Which animal? Oh, jeez. And I've been doing this for eight years, and I've worked with all different uh, types of exotics. Oh, my God. Is that snapping turtle? No. That's a good question, but no, that's no. – no. It was a white fallow deer. Really? <laughs> Oh, it was a deer. Really? Her name was Taffy. Oh, God, yeah. Like, Hoof and mouth disease? Yep. Not that. It, it was yet yeah, chronic wasting ah. disease. So I had – that was just yeah. – that was yeah. the biggest uh, pain in the rear to do that. That took a few months. But we were able to accomplish it. So bottom line, there's a lot of regulations. And even with the Today Show, and my producer and I are very close now. We've been working together, like I said, for eight years. And he, he even told me straight up one time over dinner, like the first thing I did, you know, after hearing about you and after receiving your pitch, first thing I did was I looked into you. I looked in to see if you were, you know, had a USDA license. I looked in to make sure there were no citations. Like the last thing a show wants to do is put on somebody who's, you know, who's not qualified or who's using animals that are not, um, you know, properly permitted or taken care of. And sorry, just to get on top of that, but you know, with these appearances, sometimes you have to have an on-site veterinarian there. Sometimes oh, you'll have someone yeah. willing to do the Tonight Show with Jay. Yeah. Some, we had a, we, I used, I also did the Tonight Show with Jay Leno back in the day and we would have someone from the American Humane Society there. I mean, she didn't do anything, but just to make sure that, Hey, are, you know, that the animals are, are mm-hmm. humanely treated. So. Yeah. Corbin, you bring up some great points. I mean, the, the permitting alone and the time and energy that goes into making sure these animals are moved safely and that they're well cared for is just amazing. I mean, it's, and I've never had that job. So I, I know I've, a lot of my friends that are curators and stuff definitely kind of, you know, roll their eyes a little bit back to the permitting because it's such a, there's a lot of red tape to jump through. And, but that's part of being one of these accredited bodies. And that's what, it's self-government. I mean, cause that's the thing. The reason roadside mm-hmm. zoos are allowed to exist and you can unfortunately take a picture with a white tiger cub is because the USDA that governs a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the agricultural things here in the United States, uh, they, of course they have care standards, but they're, uh, they're minimal. And that's where a lot of the bigger zoos got on, on board and said, Hey, we want to, we want to, we want to make it harder to be a zoo, a good zoo. We want to make it, uh, we want to have higher standards, the highest standards of care. And we want to keep improving those each year. And so a zoo that's accredited by the AZA, it's not like you get accredited once and then you're free and clear. Uh, the, the process, the accreditation process is like a two to three day process. They do internal and external. They interview keepers there. I mean, it's, it's like intense and, 
on-site inspections. If, if you're at a zoo and they're preparing for a, a um, what is it, a, um, a visit by the AZA and they're trying to get their accreditation, it is insane. Oh, yeah. We, I mean, um, we started over through. a year in advance. And, and it's obviously the animals yep. are the number one part of it and yep. how they're cared for and what they're fed and what their enrichment is and who they live. You know, are they, do they have mates? Do they have friends? All these kinds of things according to what their natural, um, behavior is. And that's brings up a quick, another little side tangent is that a lot of people at a zoo will say, Oh my gosh, that tiger looks so sad. He's by himself. And that. Zoos like to follow the natural behavior of an animal, and a male tiger is a solitary animal. Just like your cats at your house, they don't want friends. Lions are an oddball. Lions like their pride. They like their friends. But tigers are like your house cat. They don't want any friends. They only want friends, you know, Mm -hmm. during breeding season. And so it's things like that where... I don't think zoos always do a lot of the, uh, they don't help themselves out a lot by kind of explaining why the animal maybe lives by itself or why it lives, you know, in the dark or why it lives, things like that. But the zoos are always trying to do natural behavior. And a lot of this is monitored through the AZA accreditation process. And when you do get accredited, uh, you have another inspection in five years. So pretty much if you work at an accredited zoo, like every three to four years, you're preparing for the next accreditation and they are, very rigorous. And that's what z- people that work for zoos love animals. They don't make any money for goodness sakes. And yes. most of them pretty much doing it for free. Oh, God, and no. so it's like, they basically said, no. we want higher standards. We don't, we want more than the USDA. We want to be different than roadside zoos. And yeah, I mean, the, in the 20 and 21st century, it's just really, um, it's just really increased. And the zoo that I worked at every year, they would do these capital campaigns and, get a hold of all the, a lot of the people that had a lot of money in Chicago to help donate. And every year they were opening new modern habitats uh, to reduce some of the older outdated areas. So the animals could live in larger, more natural, um, gorgeous spacious spaces. So now, you know, it's, Unless you're Disney, not every zoo can have that like right away. Uh, but all the zoos, that's what the goal is. That's what they're working for. And that's what the accredited bodies are requiring of them. And so it is, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a really rigorous process and it's none of it's willy nilly. Like you said, it can, t- you know, um, there's a lot of thought that goes into everything is, that you do is. with an animal. There has to be because especially in this day and age, there's a lot of eyes on you, right? There's a lot of people that are, um, and rightfully so they should be. And I, you know, I want to jump in and, and zoos, you know, there is some criticism of zoos. There's, there should be, you know, you should, uh, and the AZA does that and they are evolving. They have changed a lot in the last 20 years due to, you know, social pressure and, and, and what the public wants. And like I said, this has been going on for 200 years. It's not like people just all of a sudden woke up and said, Oh, this is terrible. Um, again, one of the pe- things that people argue is, Oh, these animals should all be in the wild. Yeah. And yeah, that would be awesome. Absolutely. It would be <laughs> ideal. You know, I want to go to Africa and see these animals in the wild, you know, and that's where they do belong, but there's no wild left. You know, we're right. down to 25% of natural habitat before humans took over the earth, you know, in the last couple hundred years or, or 500 years. So, you know, zoos, you know, can be open to some criticism. I mean, the, 
we all know that, you know, I had a friend uh, on Facebook, Ben, he has been passing me some articles on some zoos in Europe where they had some mi- mixed exhibits, which I had concerns about, you know, and they're certified by the European uh, AZA that they have there. So, you know, zoos can do, some zoos can do better job and, and they are trying really hard, but I'm going to tell you, they are critical. And I'm going to open up a can of worms, Angie. And Let's Corbin. do it. And <laughs> Come on. If you're still with us, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So let's get controversial just a little bit. And that's, you know, talking a little bit about Blackfish and SeaWorld and the impact that's had on ocean conservation because aquariums are doing a tremendous amount uh, you know, we call it ex situ. So out in the wild, pre- preserving oceans or rehabilitation of animals. I know my work in Florida, manatee rehabilitation was a big deal there with, with zoos and, and SeaWorld. But, you know, I brought up earlier the Fikita porpoise. So just news today I read, we're down to 10. You know, and when Angie and I covered them over a year ago, we were up to, I think, 30 to 50 is what they thought. But now they know they're down to 10. But because the film Blackfish and some animal rights organizations, it made marine mammals, it's just not palatable, you know, for for zoos or aquariums to bring them into captivity or or, or under human care. They just, people are so against that. that. So when they did try the whole safe movement to bring, I mean, they spent millions of dollars to try to bring them in. And it just didn't work. They They just weren't. They did. They did. And when that one, that one female, yeah, that one female died and they right. were like, that's it. We can't, right. because of public pressure, we can't bring them in and try to do it. So, so they're going to go extinct. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're yeah. going to go extinct. Mm-hmm. That, that's, we're, we're seeing it, we're seeing it live. And some regulations I'm reading in Canada that they're trying to pass will really have an effect not only on marine mammals, but also some of their like the woodland caribou. They want to bring them down. There's only 18 of them left, but based on regulations in Canada, they may not be able to. Where I think, you know, bringing SeaWorld and, and, and just kind of broaching this, this topic. And again, it's, that's a whole different podcast, but so what some of the, the research that SeaWorld has done, and I've read some of their papers on, on, you know, not only killer whales, but their dolphins and, and other marine mammals, uh, back in the day, you know, studying for graduate studies that they have developed a lot of techniques that scientists can use to, to apply to the wild population. One of the things they did is, measuring hormones in Mm -hmm. poop and and urine. And now they're able to go and study, especially these, these killer whales in the Puget Sound area that are, that are endangered, you know, that pod's totally endangered. So they're out there studying, learning about them because of, of some research that SeaWorld's done. So, you know, yeah, is there some criticism on, on, on zoos and aquariums? Yes. But I think you have to look at the bigger picture. You, you know, it, it, the global picture that you and I have painted this past year. And right. A half. And I think that's the biggest thing is the, the, the bigger picture as far as the world and, 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 and how it all interacts and what the piece of the puzzle is and think outside of just the little bubble of the sea world in your local town and what they are doing both like our, the sea world, sea world here in Orlando, 
the amount of restoration and co- conservation, the money that they dump into Florida and helping save a lot of like stranded wildlife and rehabilitation of this wildlife, ocean life, of course. And it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And then of course, educating people along the way and working with their community. And, but then globally beyond that, I guess it, my whole thing is, all right, if you're, if the argument is to go put the animals back in the wild, um, I mean, I just saw an article in my feed this morning that a whale washed up with 88 pounds of plastic in mm-hmm. its belly. That it was like, it's, it was sad. It was mm-hmm. trying to calcify it in its stomach. So, I mean, well, is that a, I don't know. I, that's not a good solution either. Like, even if, even if you are, yeah. you know, even if I could agree with you, okay. You know, uh, yeah, no, and, and, you know, no more orcas. And I just want to jump in because, uh, and I'm on the fence. I interviewed, and I have not released this yet for my podcast, but I interviewed one of the, uh, the main trainers and keepers, I guess, for Keiko, the famous free willy whale. And he was there in Iceland, traveled with Keiko, and he was, he went through that mm-hmm. process and it turned into a complete disaster. And basically what happened, if, if you're not familiar, Keiko kept on coming back you know, towards people mm-hmm. and it, it, they tried to reintroduce him because of, you know, activist pressure and it turned into a disaster. Keiko ended up dying and it was horrible. And he said it was just, he said it was horrible when they were trying to teach him because all this animal knew was, you know, he'd look at his trainers, his family. And then all of a sudden he was just left to kind of, I mean, they tried to teach him to hunt and they did, I think the best that they could at the time, but I think it's a lot, it's, it's, it's very easy to say, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We want to see everything wild. Let's release everything to a sanctuary back into the wild. It's not as easy as you think. And Keiko is a living example of something that we tried to do and it just did not work out and it failed. And when I talked to him, he said it could be based on borderline animal abuse for like what was going on. I mean, really though, I mean, it like, yeah, what a horrible way to go. Mm-hmm. And so that was huge. Anyway, yeah. That's my absolutely. Thought. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier yeah. said than done. That's what my yeah. Right and, well, and, that, and that's the thing too. And just you know, these wild spaces because of the human population, they're not they're contaminated. And I know, and I and I'm obviously for animals. You know, I love. I want them to live in the wild. I like Chris and I mentioned earlier. I if all animals could live free in the wild, then we could, that would be amazing. But it's just for a lot of animals, it's not safe for them and we need the research on how to make it safer for them and we need a government policy and it's it's very very complex i don't have the answers I, I talk with conservation specialists out in the field once or twice a month and they always they they open my eyes to just about how complex it is to quote unquote save uh the sumatran rhino for instance mm-hmm. um oh yeah that the cincinnati zoo you just did that interview yeah. And so it, it's, and they're, and they're working their tails off and they're work in every, here's this, everybody that I've interviewed, these amazing conservation heroes that are in the, in the field. Uh, I haven't released it. We haven't released it yet, but I interviewed a researcher, um, that treks for 10 to 14 days to get to his camera traps in Indonesia, in Sumatra and you know, that ain't, that's not easy. And guess who partners with him? Zoos and aquaria mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and other agencies in the government. None of these, none of these specialists and conservation heroes I talk to, PETA animal activists have never given them a dollar, have never, 
they don't, you know, they're not helping the, the problem overseas. Now, granted, in the United States, I think if we put our mind to something because of our policy is a little bit theoretically a little more democratic here. Um, yes, here we maybe could, could do it, but they tried it with the Red Wolf and that's having a nightmare yeah. of a time right now. Yeah. So yeah. Red Wolves were brought back and under human care and oh, a thriving yeah. population released them out to North Carolina area and you know, with issues with government and landowners and things like that, it is, we're having conflict over here under our, under our own soil. And so uh, I, yeah, I just think that, I don't know, I guess I wish all the, the activists or PETA would, you know, go, go help, go help. If you want to free Willie, go, go out to Seattle and volunteer and research and, and get to know the J pod. I forget their names of, mm-hmm. of all those individuals help study, volunteer to study, volunteer to learn more about them. Like that's how you should be spending your time instead of like beating up SeaWorld or in yeah. my opinion, um, because that's going to be helpful. Like Gathering more data is constructive um, or, you know, or if you could volunteer at a zoo and, and really get behind the scenes and see if you like it. So I think that's the thing is that you got to think bigger picture or, or go, go explore for yourself. And goodness knows that yeah, these I mean, researchers overseas could use help. Yeah. That's for sure. When you were talking, I mean, the, what came to my mind was the, the Leipzig Zoo out of, out of Europe, out of Germany and the Catbaw project, mm-hmm. you know, going back to Niagara Leonard, you know, one of my first interviews, if it wasn't for them, those, they would be extinct. Yeah. Those, and I, those I did, Germans zoos do amazing work in Africa as well. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. lot, most yeah. zoos do amazing work in Africa as well, but yeah. they, a lot, I mean, that's the thing is these, well, let me, oh, go ahead. No, as I say, let me give you a, a, a feel good story. I, I wanted to bring that up and then give you a feel oh, we good have story one? and, and one. Oh, I, good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Cause Corbin, yes. you brought us down, man. That How did I bring is. you down? Oh, no, sorry. Was... <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So here's, sorry. here's, here's, here's just one example and there are many and, and we, we're going to have to wrap up soon because we'll be here for all day, all day. So I, I came across this, the Houston Zoo. Okay. Uh, before they, release their new gorilla exhibit, right? They, they had, they sent a reporter from, I think the Houston newspaper there to go to Rwanda and see mountain gorillas. And we just covered this, you know, a few weeks ago in our podcast, how you can go to Rwanda or Uganda. That's the best place to go to see them and to see how the Houston zoos programs were helping the local population. So the reporter, you know, went and described how the Houston zoo was supporting that the, not only the healthcare of the local populace, but also education, which they in turn bought in to help the mountain gorillas, right? This is why they're important. Here's the money that we're bringing to your community. Here's the healthcare we're bringing. So that's just the Houston zoo. We know Brookfield zoo, your competitor there in Chicago, or sister zoo, sister yes. zoo in Chicago, yeah. you know, is the sisters <laughs> is enhancing animal welfare. They're leading that effort. There are, Multiple examples across the world, the, the Snow Leopard Trust in Nepal that is working with locals and, and zoos. I remember San Antonio Zoo walking through there. You can buy stuff from the local population right. in Nepal to help support snow leopards. So there are many good stories out there. And yeah, you, you should always, you know, if, if there's, there's constructive feedback is helpful. Absolutely. It's always helpful. But to attack, 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 and say, "Oh, they belong in sanctuaries." Who's going to pay that? Well, nobody. Correct. And I and I want to say though that 
as everything, zoos are evolving. And that has been a common theme in this conversation. But zoos are evolving. And a great example is the Detroit Zoo, which my wife's from Detroit. So I've been to the Detroit Zoo. What, what? Oh, Michigan. What's up, Michigan? Yeah. What, what? Go That's Jets That's right. Pizza. You married, you married a, a good Michigan podcast. girl. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But they were the first zoo to say, you know what? It's so cold here. The habitat's not big enough for our elephants. And they decided that to move their elephants to a sanctuary in California. And it was the first zoo that ever did that on ethical grounds. And I'm not saying that all zoos are going to do this because some zoos have fantastic and beautiful elephant exhibits. You know, I know in San Diego where you are, Chris, beautiful exhibits, but zoos are evolving. And um, I, I think that is an important note. Absolutely. To put in there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, and, and, and there are sanctuaries and like you rescue animals, right? In, in, in your neck of the woods in the United States. So there are ones out there doing great work, but it's, it's so expensive to keep these animals. So you just can't say, take all the animals in zoos and put them in sanctuary. What does that mean? It's just another zoo. It's, it's under human care. Right. Well, and, Whereas, that, and that's the other thing too, you know, the sanctuaries, I don't know if they have an accrediting body, but then sometimes no. you get sanctuaries that do, do they breeding have- that don't follow the SSP yeah. guidelines. And so it's, you know, it's, it's definitely not as straightforward and easy as it sounds. And no. that's why I think if you are, if you're passionate enough to be uh, an activist or, you know, saying really unpleasant things to you, Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> after the today show or whatever, like, I guess I would beg of people to, to get a little more educated or go experience something and maybe volunteer at a zoo or volunteer, um, to do field conservation. They're always looking for young, able bodies or old, able bodies, anybody they'll take whatever they can get sometimes and to just, and, and travel the world. I, it's easy for me to say here, uh, because I've been to Africa a couple of times. I'm hopefully going again, uh, this fall, I just submitted an abstract. Chris and I submitted an abstract. Oh, so what? Yeah. So, uh, oh, very exciting. Awesome. Yes. Um, but, uh, but I've been there and, 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 and I still need to do a lot more travel in Asia and things like that. And luckily Chris and I are making friends through the podcast with that, but I've seen that it's not, it's, it's not easy. It's not what people always think about it. And so mm-hmm. I guess that would, if you, you know, if you're going to see, you know, I guess understand it before you really dive deep or maybe do a little more education uh, or educate yourself a little bit more um, would be, that would be my plea. Uh, I know that helped me out because I didn't understand yeah. zoos. I mean, I studied animal uh, zoology and it wasn't until I actually really you know, went behind the scenes and worked at a credit zoo that I understood uh, the amount of care and energy and time and regulation and love and passion and, sweat and tears and no money and backbreaking work for the love of these animals and that the animals are pretty darn happy. Um, so yeah. And then Corbin, can you just, you know, quickly talk about your experiences with the safe program and kind of explain to the listeners what you did there to support zoos and aquariums? Yeah, this was great. So a few years ago, the association of zoos and aquariums decided to do a this giant initiative called SAFE, which stands for um, Saving Animals from Extinction, and basically saving wild animals and wild habitats. And in 2016, I was a spokesperson for them, 
And basically, it was a great partnership between Frito-Lay and the AZA to where if you buy a bag of chips, you're basically supporting conservation and you also get a ticket to your local zoo. And it just it, it just was inspiring kids to get involved, to get outside. And it, it really was a great program. And they used me. They flew me to New York and I had to go in. I went into um, – had to do countless press. We did People Magazine. We did – I had a room full of journalists ask me questions and – when you go to New York with a room full of journalists, I'll tell you what, not every one of them is a giant zoo fan. <laughs> so, no, that, no, no. That was fun. Um, no, I'm kidding. That actually turned out to be great because I had one journalist come up after me. And we, I also, with that program, partnered with the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. And so I was there to talk and be kind of the face of that program. And then the Columbus Zoo was there and they had animal ambassadors. We had like an African penguin, which was part of the safe program because they are endangered, uh, which is so sad that um, African penguin, but we, you know, brought in animal ambassadors to these, to these talks. And um, one of the most rewarding things was a journalist came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, I never liked zoos, but after hearing what you were talking about with the zoos and after meeting the animals and realizing what they are actively doing and inspiring and getting people excited about animals, you know, let alone the millions, like I'm talking millions and millions of dollars that year. I think they gave $180 million, $180 million, like what to conservation, hundred percent of the proceeds. So it changed her mind. So I was very proud to do that. And uh, I had a really good experience doing that. So. Yeah, uh, awesome. I mean, great spokesman for them. And, you know, just my bottom line, you know, Angie and I, in our All Creatures podcast, we've covered 61 species so far. We've interviewed 21 experts from around the world. You know, this has been huge eye-opening for me, the, the crisis we're faced with. You know, each species we cover in their part of the world, there's something pressuring them towards extinction. So, in my expert opinion, you know, cause I, I'm now, I consider myself an expert, you know, not only in reproduction physiology and animal science, blah, 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 but in conservation, you know, getting educated. If animals were banned from zoos and aquariums, we would see a huge, huge loss of biodiversity, massive loss of biodiversity. Yes. Yeah. That's just, Absolutely, that is Chris. the bottom line. And my bottom line, oh, yeah. of course I agree with oh, you yeah. and all that, but uh, is that I think the energy spent criticizing or making an uproar or petitioning or whatever it is. I mean, obviously it's your free right to do what you want to do. I'm not telling you what to do, but I think if we're going to save animals from extinction, we all need to actually work together. And I don't know what all the answers are at all. That's why I always like to interview some of the field conservation experts and experts at zoos and things like that to get a general idea of what's happening out there and hear what other people are saying. And because if we don't work together, I, I mean, we're already in trouble. Okay. Not to be a, too much of a Debbie downer, but we're already in trouble. And, and there's tons of positive stories and those positive stories only came about when people shook hands across the aisle, got to hear each other's story and work together instead of slinging mud or dung or whatever the um, analogy is. So that's kind of my plea is like, I think everybody, whether you like zoos or don't like zoos, if you're even listening to this podcast or care anything about animals, it's be or are passionate. It's because you care. It's because you love them. It's because you like looking at them either in the wild or in magazines or in videos or at zoos. And so it's like, that's a common ground. So I don't under, I don't really understand why there's so much disconnect or dissidence about, uh, 
about why it's so bad for them to be in accredited zoos. Like, why don't we work together to increase USDA policy so people can't have white tigers in their backyards or that, what, what's that movie, The Elephant in the Room, living in horse trailers? That's, that's legal in Texas. That shouldn't be legal. Oh, yeah. I have people spent more energy. Yeah, there's like more tigers in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if, sorry to interrupt. There are more tigers in Texas in the wild. It's insane. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. that's a problem. And so that, no, I guess no, that's true. the thing too, is people that really love animals and are really passionate about animal welfare. Cause I think that's what this comes down to, right? Wanting the best for the animals. Well, A, they need to be alive. <laughs> they need to not be extinct. And then B, let's, let's look where the holes are. Zoos are willing to do it. Zoos are trying to accredit. Zoos are trying to keep raising their bar with each other. And so let's figure out how to raise the standards for other non-accredited zoos or, um, or other entities that hold animals and things like that. Um, that's what I think the push and then, or even scratch that, let's try to fix this stuff out in the wild. So more animals can live happily and forever after in the wild. Yeah. And yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I want to say that really quick because there is a lot of critics and I know we are wrapping up Chris. Chris is giving me the close. No, 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 no. Is, um, is he giving you, but, the, is he giving no, you the, uh, female cassowary s- stare? Here, let me do it. oh my goodness i know no i'm just i just wanted to say that there the wild is not a good place right now there is hardly a wild left and the thing about it is that i just want to say out of sight out of mind i recently just had um you know someone um from the from the diane fossey gorilla fund on there are only 600 Mountain gorillas left on our planet. So when you have what was what was the uh, statistic? Seven hundred million people around the world going to zoos and seeing animals like gorillas or iconic animals like elephants or little tiny, you know, maybe non-charismatic animals like the golden frog. That is making a difference. And if we didn't have those animals for ambassadors, I think we'd be in a really bad situation. So. I think, yes, Amen. I think it was great. I think if, if you put it down to it, everyone would say, oh, of course, it'd be great if everything was out in the wild and it was perfect and there, and there wasn't poaching and there wasn't all this stuff going on, but that's not happening. So I just, yeah, yeah. I guess that's my, my <laughs> thought. It, but it's, it's so true. It is so true. And, oh, it's, you know, I think we're going to, we're going to have another discussion like this, uh, soon. Yeah. It's- well, and Chris, um, there, we'll definitely, uh, on our show notes, uh, we can put some links up with some, some references mm-hmm. and some statistics to help anybody who wants to gather, you know, to look at it with their own, with their own eyes and kind of, kind of read through it. And of course, we love to field questions and uh, we want to evolve as well. So, definitely be in touch with us and let us know what your thoughts are. And because I think an open dialogue is awesome. That's where growth comes from. Slinging dung, not so much. Um, please don't sling dung at me. I will just cry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm just, I'm, I'm going to plead with the listeners, share this episode, share this episode. We need to spread the message because, you know, a lot of people on Facebook, you know, we're, it's all in the news about, you know, anti-vax and all this stuff. We need the truth out there. And if you can share this to, to your friends and family and let them know that the hard work that, that people like Corbin are doing and people that work in zoos and aquariums across the world, that will help them out because we need to come together or the planet's going to suffer. Bottom line. So thank you. Thanks Corbin. It's so, it's so good for, uh, for you to be here and, uh, we appreciate your time and your energy. We know you're very busy. Uh, We are some of your biggest fans. So keep up the good work. 
Oh, thank you. And thank you for all the name mentions during your episodes. I get so excited. So I'm like, oh, they said my name. <laughs> Drop it in there. <laughs> and I'll message Chris. Yes. We're yeah. always thinking so of you, buddy. Thank you so much. And I just want to say, if you loved this show or if you want to listen to another podcast, subscribe to our podcast, please. We appreciate all the ratings. So the All Creatures podcast yes. and Animals to the Max, check them out because it helps us out a lot. And I don't know about you guys, but I love getting podcast feedback from people like around the world you're like wait you're listening <laughs> like, i know what? it's so cool <laughs> yes yes it's so cool yeah it is so it is. thank you <laughs> yeah no thanks corvin it is awesome except we we haven't hit korea like you did we just korea. We, we, we get a couple i lessons, know but... it's so cool <laughs> anyway i need to yeah so <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right take care so bye listen learn share Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.